0: From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. My name is Robin Bearfield, and I am broadcasting from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Beginning this month, I plan to do something different with my podcast episodes. I have been releasing an episode once every three weeks, but I plan to increase it to two episodes a month. One episode will be new, and the other is one I will bring you from the archives. I covered many of Alaska's most famous crimes and infamous criminals in my first podcast when my audience numbers were low, so I plan to dust them off, re-edit, or re-record them if necessary, and release them again. I hope you enjoy these episodes, and I hope to attract new listeners. Thank you so much for listening. My first newsletter, as well as my first podcast episode, covered the McCarthy Massacre of 1983. The details of this grisly crime send chills through me, because this is a crime I can relate to, and it is one of my worst fears, living in the wilderness. I live in the midst of the world's most concentrated population of huge brown bears, but bears are not what scare me most. There are no roads or cars where I live and no other human habitations within miles of my home. So the most frightening thing I can imagine would be to look out a window on a stormy winter night and catch the glimpse of a human shadow running across the walk. A few times hunters camping in the area and in need of our help have knocked on our door late at night. And while we were happy to assist them, I realized there was no one we could call for help if the visitors threatened us. The Alaska State Troopers are the responsible law enforcement agents outside the Kodiak city limits, but they're based in the town of Kodiak, 70 air miles from my home, and they can only respond during daylight hours because it isn't safe to fly over this mountainous island at night. We're on our own if some psychopath forces his way into our lives. Like the folks in the story I'm about to tell you, a plane carrying our mail, supplies, and groceries stops at our dock once a week. And eerily enough, our mail plane, like the plane that serviced the doomed residents of McCarthy, is also on Tuesday. Since the plane lands and pulls up to our dock, we're sometimes the only people here to meet it. But anyone can get supplies and mail or pay for a seat fare on this plane. Occasionally, people we've never met show up for the plane to wait for supplies or passengers, and we invite these strangers into our home for coffee and cookies while they wait for the plane. Usually, these folks are nice and appreciate our hospitality, but once in a while, someone makes me uncomfortable, and I breathe a sigh of relief when I see him speed away from our dock in his boat heading back toward his campsite. We know nothing about these strangers, but we assume and hope They mean us no harm. In 1983, Les and Flo Hegland's home in McCarthy, Alaska, was the gathering spot where the 22 residents of the Kennecott-McCarthy area could wait for the weekly mail plane. The Heglins lived near the small airstrip where the plane landed, and not only did they offer their hospitality, but they went so far as to build an addition onto their front porch where they would leave uncollected mail and groceries so that the nearby residents could drop by at their convenience to pick up their freight. Tuesday, March 1st, 1983, was mail day for the residents of the McCarthy area. McCarthy and Kennicott are located four miles from each other in the middle of the Wrangell-St. Elias National Park and Preserve, approximately 120 miles northeast of Cordova and 230 miles east of Anchorage. Wrangell-St. Elias encompasses an area about the size of West Virginia, with four mountain ranges converging in the park. The temperature fluctuates from fifty degrees below zero in the winter to ninety degrees in the summer, and annual snowfall averages fifty two inches. At the turn of the twentieth century the richest concentration of copper ever unearthed was found in the mountains above Kennicott. The town of Kennicott was developed as a place for the miners to live while McCarthy was developed as a place for the miners to play. By the 1930s, most of the ore was gone, and Kennecott and McCarthy became ghost towns. The railroad track that had been used to transport the ore soon fell into disrepair and became the McCarthy Road. This road begins where the pavement ends in Chitna, 61 miles to the west, and in 1983, the road was nearly impassable. For the most part, the residents of the area were stranded during the long winter of 1983, and they were dependent upon and looked forward to their Tuesday mail plane. In 1983, McCarthy had no running water, no telephones, and no electricity, except for that provided by individual generators, and only the Heglands owned a two-way radio powerful enough to communicate with Cordova. The independent souls that called this remote area home had very little contact with the outside world, so the weekly gathering to wait for the mail plane was a way to share news, and the mail plane pilot was an important link to the outside world. On February 28th, The night before mail day, 29-year-old Chris Richards played a board game with his Kennecott neighbor, 39-year-old Louis Hastings, an unemployed computer programmer who had moved to Alaska from California in 1980 and had only lived in the Kennecott area since 1982. According to Richards, the evening was unremarkable. The following morning, as Richards cooked breakfast, Hastings appeared at his front door. Richards assumed Hastings was on his way to meet the mail plane, and he pushed open the door, invited Hastings in for coffee, and then continued cooking his meal. A moment later, Richards felt something strike his right cheek, shattering his glasses. He immediately ducked his head and then felt an object hit his head. He turned toward Hastings and saw him walking toward him with his rifle held high, ready to fire again. Richards grabbed Hastings and they began to struggle, while Richards screamed at the other man to stop. Hastings said, look, you're already dead. If you'll just quit fighting, I'll make it easy for you. Richards grabbed a knife from the sink and stabbed Hastings in the left upper chest and right leg. Richards then fled the cabin into the waist-deep snow, wearing only one sock, one slipper, a t-shirt, and light corduroy pants. While Hastings fired shots at him, Richards fought his way three-quarters of a mile up a steep hill to an unoccupied cabin, where he found boots a parka, and snowshoes. He then staggered one-tenth of a mile to the southwest to the cabin of Tim and Amy Nash, who had just gotten married on Christmas Day and had only returned to the Kennecott area two weeks earlier. The Nashes bandaged Richard's wounds while he told them what had happened. Since Hastings appeared to be heading toward McCarthy, where the area residents would soon be gathering to meet the mail plane, Richard and the Nashes decided to arm themselves and go to the runway to warn the others about Hastings. The Nashes rode on their snow machine, pulling Richards behind them on a sled. When they reached the airstrip, they met Gary Green, a pilot and guide. Green was cleaning off his airplane. And when he heard their story, he told them he'd seen Hastings 20 minutes earlier, heading toward the Heglins. Tim Nash volunteered to check on the Heglins while Green warmed up his plane in preparation to fly Richards to Glen Allen, 40 minutes away, for medical help and to contact the troopers and request their assistance. As Green was getting ready to load Richards into the plane, Amy Nash saw her husband running with a limp down the airstrip toward them. He had just been to the Hegland's house, where he smelled the acrid aroma of gun smoke and saw blood splattered all over the interior of the house. Tim was certain the Heglins were dead, and when he walked into the kitchen, he saw Hastings on the back porch. Nash fired at Hastings and missed, but when Hastings returned fire, he struck Nash in the right leg. The Nashes told Green to go for help, and then they made the fateful decision to stay on the airstrip and warn the others. Once Green took off, he radioed the incoming mail plane and told the pilot not to land at McCarthy. He then contacted the state police in Glen Allen and reported the situation. Meanwhile, Hastings followed a dog sled trail through the thick brush back to the airstrip. He crawled up a large mound of plowed snow across the runway from the Nashes and fired 10 rounds at the newlyweds, who stood 250 yards away. He then walked within 50 feet of their bodies and fired two more shots and then continued to approach, firing two final shots into their heads. He then dragged their bodies to the top of the snowbank across from where he had been firing in an attempt to hide them in deeper snow. About that time, two more area residents, Harley King and Donna Byram, arrived on King's snow machine at the north end of the airstrip. Byram saw Hastings on the snowbank on the west side of the strip and then noticed the blood on the snow on the east side of the runway. As they pulled alongside the Nash's bodies, Hastings opened fire on them. Byram was standing on the sled behind the snow machine, and she saw the bullets hit the machine and King. One bullet hit Byram in the upper right arm. King drove the snow machine as fast as he could toward the south, away from Hastings. But his leg had been broken by one of Hastings' shots, and he soon lost control. The snow machine crashed and threw King and Byram to the runway near the path that led to the heglins. Byram tried to load King back onto the sled, but Hastings was quickly approaching. King told her he couldn't move, and she had to save herself. Byram fled toward the heglins and soon heard two shots and knew King was dead. When she reached the heglins and saw the door had been kicked in, she ran to the greenhouse and hid outside. As she huddled, shivering, she heard Hastings' approach, calling out, One not dead! One not dead! She heard Hastings' footsteps on the porch. But then he abruptly turned around and sped off on the Nash's snow machine. Let me take a quick break. In addition to writing articles on murder and mystery in Alaska, I also write Alaska wilderness mystery novels. I invite you to check out my novels on Amazon and other online booksellers. You can also find my books at Barnes & Noble in Anchorage and in several Kodiak stores if you live on or are planning to visit Kodiak Island. You'll find links to my books in the show notes. Hastings headed west on the McCarthy Road, where the troopers from Glen Allen easily intercepted him by helicopter. Hastings waved to the troopers when they landed and told them he was Chris Richards and that Lou Hastings had gone berserk and was shooting up McCarthy. The troopers knew Richards was already in Glen Allen, though, and they had a description of Lou Hastings. They arrested Hastings without incident. The troopers then continued to McCarthy, where they found the injured Byram. Byram was forced to share the helicopter ride back to Glenallen with the man who had murdered her neighbors and had tried to kill her. Inside the Hegland's house, the troopers found Les and Flo Hegland and their neighbor, Maxine Edwards, stacked in the bedroom. A bloody fur-covered silencer sat on the nightstand beside the bodies. Why did Lewis Hastings decide to go on a murderous rampage and kill his neighbors? The reason is nearly as bizarre as the crimes themselves. Hastings was a very intelligent computer pro- programmer who worked at Stanford University in the late 1970s. But like many people who moved to Alaska, he left the overdeveloped area where he lived and worked with dreams of starting a new life in the unspoiled wilderness of Alaska. At first, he and his wife settled in Anchorage, and he started a computer service business out of his house. But by 1982, his business and marriage were failing, and he began to spend more and more time at his cabin in Kennecott. Alaska's economy was booming in 1983 due to the construction of the Trans-Alaska Oil Pipeline that carries oil from Prudhoe Bay south to the Port of Valdez on Prince William Sound. The state was flush with money, and development was in high gear. Hastings hated the pipeline, and he felt the construction boom would ruin the lifestyle he had dreamed of. It became his mission to destroy the pipeline. His convoluted plan was to kill anyone who showed up to meet the Tuesday mail plane. Next, he would kill the mail plane pilot and steal the plane. He then planned to fly to a pump station near the pipeline about 80 miles west of McCarthy, where he would land and rig the plane to take off again without him in it. Next, he would steal a fuel truck and ram the pipeline while shooting at it. The action would badly damage the pipeline, and he hoped that the oil would congeal in the cold winter temperatures and not do too much environmental damage. He then believed the fuel truck would burst into flames and char his body beyond recognition. He hoped people would think he had been murdered in McCarthy with the other residents, and his family would never know he was a murderer who committed suicide in the end. Six people died in the McCarthy Massacre, including Les and Flo Hegland, Maxine Edwards, Tim and Amy Nash, and Harley King. Chris Richards and Donna Byron were injured. As a sad addendum to this tragic story, Chris Richards, who most people considered a hero who had saved more residents from being killed that fateful day, died when his Kennecock cabin burned down one week before Christmas in 2001. Many who knew Richards said that Hastings had finally claimed his seventh victim. Richards never fully recovered physically or mentally from the massacre, and in later years he was plagued by survivor's guilt, depression, and alcoholism. According to those who knew him, at the time of his death, he was trying to give up alcohol and was suffering from hallucinations. The McCarthy-Kinnicott area is now a popular tourist destination, but like most remote areas in Alaska, the crowds leave in September, and only a few hardy individuals choose to live in such a desolate wilderness in the winter. Most of these people cherish their solitude, but they often must depend upon and trust each other to survive the long, cold winter. For the folks of the McCarthy area, It was not easy for them to trust their neighbors again after that horrible Tuesday in March 1983. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining The Last Frontier Club. If you haven't already done it, be sure to join the Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier Facebook group and chat about the podcast. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier.